Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we, we humble ourselves before you, Lord. We thank you for your many blessings in our lives. Not to mention <laughs> the Bible itself, the Word of God in front of us. The fact that you speak to us every day when we read your Word with the Spirit's guidance. So we praise you for that, Lord. Thank you for this time that we can fellowship together, study your Word together. Lord, continue to guide and direct us, uh, give us the words to say whenever those situations arise when we need to have something, which you promised to do, and give us the, the knowledge and the information that we need from your spirit to handle whatever comes our way. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're still in chapter 11 of Hebrews, and we're now going to be talking about Moses. So that's verses 23 through 29. I'm going to read the verses as we go through it the ones that are pertinent to what we're talking about, but I wanted to first off talk about, and the, the theme, I guess, of this particular section of Moses would be about Moses is decisions. Decisions, decisions, decisions. You know, we always have decisions in life. Uh, important ones, of course, naturally. Simple ones, like what am I gonna put on today? Unimportant ones, like, you know, do I really want this or that? You know, that kind of thing, like food. Or, Complex ones, which actually could send us off into the stratosphere worrying about it. Ones that are almost unconsciously made, of course, and we make a lot of decisions like that. But others also require lengthy time and lengthy care. And some just by default. You've got to do that because it's the law or whatever the court case may be. But anyway, the course and quality of our lives are determined by much more by our decisions than even by our circumstances. Think about that for a minute and you'll see that's true. So Christians make decisions that basically reflect spiritual maturity. That's a kind of a challenge also. Are you making decisions based on spiritual maturity or are you just doing it because? Think about that too. You know, Max Sermon this morning, the distinction he made between whatever you do for the Lord, you know, is it for the Lord or is it because that's what you want to do? And I really think that's the, that's the subject matter of Romans chapter 7. I think that's what... Paul felt was his major problem was he was probably doing things because he came up with it. He wasn't really checking with God to make sure that was what he was supposed to do. I think that's what he considered sin. Can't imagine him doing anything else. Although he was just a man like you and I. You and I so so um, we have opportunities to witness, of course. Uh, Christians try not to make worldly or carnal decisions, of course, because we know who we are. We need to be good examples. The enemy wants us to make stupid choices so that he can ruin our ministry. But when we have opportunities to witness or to teach or to pray or, or to be hospitable, to read God's word, it's usually not a matter of having the time to do it. It's a matter of taking the time to do it. That was the greatest excuse I've ever heard in my life when I was teaching in college, especially. Well, I didn't have time to do my homework. I said, no, you didn't take time to do your homework. That's a zero. <laughs> I don't have compassion. Don't tell me that. No. They knew what to expect in the first place. So virtually everything we do in life, we have to make decisions about, obviously. So since time began, God has given us choices that basically determine our lives. Sure enough, for sure. Adam had a choice. He chose poorly. <laughs> Indiana Jones. 
God spoke to Israel in the wilderness. Deuteronomy 30, verse 19 says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. So choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants. Joshua said, of course, in Joshua 24, 15, choose you this day whom you will serve. And he went on to say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. But a lot of people did not do that, did they? They chose idolatry. Abel chose correctly, chose poor, didn't chose, choose poorly, he chose correctly, chose rightly, because he did what God wanted, the proper sacrifice. Cain chose poorly because he did not. He did what he wanted to do, not what God wanted to do. Enoch, and the reason I'm bringing these up are these are the ones we've been talking about in chapter 11. Enoch chose God's way by walking with him every single day, and he got rewarded by being taken to heaven immediately. He got raptured, first man to be raptured before the flood. Noah and his family, I think that's one of the most, most uh, significant examples of obeying God and paying attention to what God did and making the proper choices. He chose the right way by doing what God wanted him to do, which was absolutely ridiculous. Build a boat. He goes, I've never even seen the ocean. It's too far away. Why, what's a boat? It's going to start raining. What the heck is that? I don't even know what rain is. But he did anyway. Abraham, he chose God's way by trusting in him, regardless of, of how he thought God would fulfill the promises. He promised him a son. He was 90 years old. He finally got that son when he was 100. How about that? And of course, Sarah was 90. That's even more of a miracle. So Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph chose God's way, absolutely. They, they did not always exhibit it during their lives, but they chose the proper way at the end. They exhibited faith and conquered death. Right choices are made from what? Right faith, right? So the enemy make, take, makes things look attractive and easy and good. God's way generally seems to be a little bit difficult perhaps, and maybe hard and unenjoyable even, but it's still God's way. So we desire to do his will by faith. And that's exemplified here when we talk about Moses. We desire to do God's will, he did too. We choose God's way, he did too. The temptations and allurements of Satan defeated many people, and it's in the Bible. But also we know from Ephesians 6, 16, lift up over all of the shield of the saving faith upon which you can quench how many of the darts of the evil one? All of them. Not just a few. Not just the worst ones. All of them. So Moses lived 120 years. Three forties. His first 40 years he was in Egypt. And the prince of Egypt. Exalted position son of the daughter of Pharaoh. The next 40 years, he lived in the wilderness. He was a shepherd in Midian. Now, I, I don't know this for sure, but I'm, I'm kind of sure that things didn't look quite like they do now, back then. I think there was a lot of more, a lot more uh, vegetation. I think there was probably a lot more water and things like that in Midian, but it was pretty bad even then. So he lived another 40 years there being a shepherd. And then the last 40 years of his life, of course, was leading the Jews into the promised land, to the promised land, not in it, but to it. He was in training. He was in training for those other 80 years. That's right. 
So um, he lived by faith. Noah did. Noah. Moses did. And since he received the covenant at Mount Sinai, which is the Ten Commandments, we think of him as being as that being Moses's law, and Jews still call it Moses's law. Of course, that's silly because it came from God. It's not Moses's law; it's God's law. But he's always associated with the law of Moses, and so therefore, he is the basis why the Jews say what they say today. They say today that you must follow Moses's law, and therefore you can please God, which is absolute lie. That's not true, right? What was, what was law given to us to, to do? It was to show us what sin is so that we can recognize sin, not to try to overcome by the use of the law necessarily to gain something. That wasn't the point. Because you cannot gain salvation by sticking to the law. But that's what the Jews still believe today. They still believe that Moses lived by legalism. And that's what they do. They think legalism will save you. What is legalism? Definition of legalism? Follow the law. And you'll be saved. What happens if you if you don't make just one of those six hundred and thirteen laws? You're basically committing them all. You are a sinner. So Moses lived by faith, not by legalism. Now let's look at those individual things. There's five of them in these verses, starting at verse twenty-three, going all the way through twenty-nine in chapter eleven of, of Hebrews. First of all, let's read twenty-three. Moses accepted by faith God's plans. What does it say? It says, prompted by faith, Moses, after his birth, was kept concealed for three months by his parents because they saw how comely, how handsome the child was, and they were not overawed or terrified by the king's decree. Now, Moses' parents, Amram and Jochebed, you know, I, I read today, it, it's funny when you go back and you read their hereditary, hereditary uh, information. Moses' mother was Jochebed, right? That was his aunt. It says earlier in the scriptures, it says Moses married his father's sister. Okay, that doesn't mean anything. I just threw that out there because it says that in the Bible. So I'm going, that just seemed a little weird. <laughs> yeah, just, anyway. <laughs> Not a big deal. Back then, I guess, I don't I'm sorry I even said that. It's true. I read, we read it this morning. So we read. Anyway, Moses' parents, Amram and Jochebed, hid Moses for three months. Now, why did they do that? Because the Pharaoh at the time, now this is a different Pharaoh than Joseph, of course. This Pharaoh said, he's looking around, he's seeing all these Jews, and there's a bunch of them, right? So he's saying that the slave population is about to exceed our population, and that may cause us trouble downstream. So what he said was, I think he said, pick the wrong, wrong uh, sex. He said, kill all the boys. I'm going, no, I wouldn't have done that. Well, he did that. He did it that way. So kill all the boys. Throw them into the Nile. So actually, Jochebed, I essentially obeyed the Pharaoh's command. She threw her son into the line. She just put him in a basket first. <laughs> and so for three months, they hid him to get him old enough where he could actually put him in a basket, I guess, where he could exist for a while. He wouldn't be uh, immediately in trouble. And uh, so Amram and Jochebed did that, and uh, Jochebed did that. And then somebody came along, and you've seen, I've probably seen the Ten Commandments. I always go back to Cecil because he, he gave it to us visually. <laughs> yeah. 
anyway, and there's so many, so many things wrong with that, but still it's interesting to watch. Uh, we know that uh, she put him in the little basket and it floated down the river and there happened to be Pharaoh's daughter and her attendants and they found the basket, brought him up to her and said, that's a Hebrew child. Immediately she knew it was. The movie didn't depict it that way, but she knew it was, but she said, find someone to wean this child, which means, and you know, weaning back then was like three years, three or four years old. But what was cool was Miriam, Moses' sister was watching all this. And so she saw what happened and she went up to Pharaoh's daughter and said, I know somebody who can wean the child. And she says, cool. So she gave Moses back to his sister. She took it to his mother and she weaned him and got paid for it. Got paid for it. Isn't that cool? I thought that was great. <laughs> so Jacobet had great faith. That's why she put him in the, in the basket. Can you imagine you mothers putting one of your three-month-old baby in a basket and floating it down the river? I mean, that would be, of course not. But she had great faith. She got paid for, for nursing her, her child to weanable age. No wonder Moses had such a great foundation for later use. Number two, faith rejects the world's prestige. Now, we got seven uh, accepts and rejecting faith here. This first one was a accepting faith. Faith accepts God's plan. Moses did that. Now faith rejects the world's prestige. Moses does this. Verse 24, prompted by faith, Moses after his birth, well, excuse me, aroused by faith, excuse me, Moses, when he had grown to maturity and became great, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. That's actually in Exodus chapter 2. I think I... That. I don't remember whether I did that or not. Probably didn't, but I'll read it to you anyway. Verse 10, it says, As a child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son, and she called him Moses, or she said, because I drew him out of the water. That's what Moses means, I drew him out of the water. And then the other verse is uh, verse uh 15, yeah. And it says, when Pharaoh heard it, he sought to slay Moses. Moses fled from Pharaoh's presence, took refuge in the land of Midian, where he sat down by. That's not the one I want. What am I looking for? 22. And she bore a son. She called his name Gershom. Said, I have been a stranger and soldier in a foreign land. I, it, it, I've got that somewhere. I don't know where it is. I'm sorry. I apologize. Yeah. Um, Anyway, 40 years, Moses was a prince of Egypt. But you got to think about how exalted a position that was. He had everything. He not only had the wealth of the nation of Egypt, he also had all of the things that the, that the nation of Egypt would bring to anybody. But he also was a member of the high court. He was actually skilled, trained in everything the, Jew, excuse me, the Egyptians taught. Now, they taught some pretty weird stuff, and some of the things they did medicinally were, were disgusting, but they didn't know what they were doing, but they, they had everything. He had everything. But when he reached the age of 40, which is a critical age of decision in the Bible, you know that, he faced a crucial decision, become a full Egyptian, take on the extra, probably the extra responsibilities that Pharaoh wanted to give him, or to be called truly a son of the Jews, which he was. And he chose that one. Now, from Stephen's oration in chapter 7 of Acts, 
it tells you an awful lot about Moses. He goes on for a long time in his, in his soliloquy about the history of the Jews. And he actually says things there. Moses was on a mission. He knew he was on a mission because God told him so. But also, what we heard, learned from that is Moses had it all. He chose not to do it. But also from Stephen, he said, by faith, Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh. That's where it is. It's in actually it's in Acts chapter 7 where he says that. He refused to be called an Egyptian. Now, it didn't, Cecil didn't paint it that way. So in the world, if you had what Moses had, fame, prestige, everything else, fantastic. He would have taken, people would have taken that immediately. But he did not do that. I'm going to read you one from, from, uh, from a spiritual standpoint. Moses was sacrificing nothing for everything. From a worldly standpoint, he was sacrificing everything for nothing. And that's true. Uh, why? Because he was looking forward to, look at verse 26. What does it say at the end of verse 26 in chapter 11? So he's looking forward to what? The reward. So he had faith that he was going to be rewarded for his obedience. That's really good. Now, the third thing this shows us is in verse 25, Moses rejects the world's pleasure. What does it say there? It says, because he preferred rather to share the oppression and bear the shame of the people of God than to have the fleeting enjoyment of a sinful life. That one's, that one always gets me. Uh, so true. Isn't that true? No one needs to be convinced that sin can be fun for a little while. And all of a sudden it comes back to bite you. Right? Pride. Uh, satisfy some desire that you have some appetite that you have. Many pleasures can become, come from those things, but they're fleeting. Sin is always evil in God's sight, regardless of what it is. And it's always a passing thing. Pleasure is always passing. It doesn't last. The good side of sin, quote unquote, the good side of sin is always deceptive and fleeting. Doesn't, doesn't matter what you're talking about. It's always those two things. So we often may ask ourselves, then why do the wicked prosper? I love those kind of, kind of things in the Bible because that's what we ask all the time, isn't it? Why do the wicked prosper? Job chapter 21 says, just, I'm just going to read you a couple of verses here, it's 7 through 9, it says, Why do the wicked live, become old, become mighty in power? Their children are established with them in their sight. Their offspring before their eyes. Their houses are safe and in peace without fear. Neither is the rod of God upon them. He goes on and on. But of course, we also know the eventuality of that. And the eventuality is a little bit different. What is that? Job says in 21.13, they all go down to the shield. They're all piling up wrath. I'll read you something out of Romans that people don't like to read. But you need to read everything that's in the Bible, right? So verses 5 and 6 of chapter 2, it says, <clears throat> But by your callous subordinateness, stubbornness, excuse me, by your callous stubbornness. Anybody in here stubborn? <laughs> Are you callously stubborn? <laughs> At times, yeah. 
or by your callous stubbornness and impenitence of heart. In other words, you don't want to, <laughs> don't want to confess. You are storing up wrath and indignation for yourself on the day of wrath and indignation when God's righteous judgment will be revealed or he will render to every man according to his works justly as his deeds deserve. Wow. Does that apply to Christians? It does not. Isn't that interesting? In context, you'll read, he's talking to unbelievers when he says that. It'd be great if we don't have to do that. <laughs> that doesn't mean he's not going to spank you if you do something wrong. That could happen. So Moses knew God was calling him to give his life for the people. He knew that. He also had a choice. He could have obeyed or disobeyed. He chose to obey. Now, he gave God a little bit of trouble. He says, why are you picking a man of, of, like me that doesn't have an ability to talk well? And so on. So what happened? He made Aaron his spokesperson. But he made a conscious effort to endure ill treatment with the people of God rather than enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. It just says that in verse 20, 25, which was an act of faith, obviously. The fourth thing is he, Moses rejected the world's plenty. That's verse 26. He considered the contempt and abuse and shame born for the Christ, the Messiah, to be greater wealth than all the treasures of Egypt. And he looked forward and away to the reward. And what's that saying? You know, living in Pharaoh's palace, which he did for 40 years, basically, you know, we might have an idea of the luxuries that he had, food and possessions and money and privilege and education, and he'd go on and on and on. But he considered, and that word there, it says that considered in your word, that the Bible there, the Greek word there is a word that indicates careful thought, not a quick decision. It took a long time for him to come to that conclusion. So Moses weighed, weighed what, what Egypt would bring and what following the Jews would bring. And he actually chose what we probably don't understand why he chose the, the second one, because he, he loved God. That's why he chose it. But the world would say, why in the world did you do that? What decision he made was eternally significant, right? Isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting? The writer, writer of Hebrews speaks of Moses' considering the reproach and the shame of Jesus Christ, which who wouldn't be born for 1,500 more years. He understood what God was setting up. He understood the plan of God. Moses suffered for Christ's sake. Isn't that interesting? 1,500 years before Christ was even born. We should be willing to do that too, to forsake, give all we have for God's sake, knowing, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4.17, our momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Isn't that cool? Number five, Moses rejected the world's pressure. And that's verse 27. What does it say? It says, motivated by faith, Moses left Egypt behind him, being unawed and undismayed by the wrath of the king. For he never flinched, but he held staunchly to the purpose and endured steadfastly as one who gazed on him who is invisible. That's an interesting thought. The first time Moses fled Egypt, he was running away because he, was, he had just killed an Egyptian and he didn't want to get punished. 
Second time Moses fled Egypt, another Pharaoh wanted to, wanted to uh, keep Moses from leaving, of course. And in both cases, Moses was in trouble, right? With the Pharaoh of all people, the most important and most powerful man. But he didn't fear. Under great pressure, he didn't fear in either case. Fear didn't work on Moses when God called him out of Egypt. Moses knew he was in God's will. And God was, was supporting him through what? That last part of verse 27. Gazed upon him who is invisible. It's amazing. We talk about faith. I don't know about you, but, but, but emotion can well up within me when I start seeing the words of to God be the glory, the first part of it there. It just it, I can feel God's glory. I can feel his presence. I can feel that. And that's what Moses did too. I can't see him. We will see him one day but I can see him because I can feel him. So Moses was the kind of man he was because he chose, literally chose to focus on God rather than a powerful monarch to be afraid of. All we need to remember really is that faith rejects the world's pressure. We don't care what the world thinks if it's against the scriptures. Number six, Faith, Moses' faith, accepted God's provision. So these, we had some rejections. Here's some, a couple of exceptions, acceptings, I should call them. Verse 28, by faith, he instituted and carried out the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood so that the angel, the destroyer of the firstborn, might not touch those of the children of Israel. You know, we always say that the angel of the Lord did that. Well, that's where we get that, where it says the angel. And the Old Testament doesn't say that. Actually, this one doesn't either. It just calls it the destroyer. I think you can make a case to say it wasn't the angel or the, the destroyer angel that came and killed all the firstborn. It's God that did it. But that's, that doesn't matter. He, he killed all the firstborn, either Jew or Gentile in Egypt, if they didn't have the blood over the lintel and the doorpost. So, that 10th and last plague is where that came from, of course. And that sent the Egyptians into a, just into a panic of obviously we've got to do something about this because this is getting worse. So how much could it, how much more worse could it get than the firstborn being killed? So the Passover was instituted to keep the, the Jews safe. One of the major things about that, one of the most incredible things about that is this would be something that would be very hard for I think any of us to do. You were required to get that lamb and a baby lamb and keep it in your house for, for four days. Love on it. Couldn't help but love on a baby lamb. Have you ever been picked up a baby lamb? They're sweet. And then sacrifice it. So that's what they had to do. But also that placing the blood on the lentil and the side posts of the, of the door, the lentil and the door post was a symbol of Christ's sacrifice, of course, the remission of sins. So Moses and the Jews did not understand the full significance of what they just did. But we do, thankfully. God required it, though, and they just obeyed. They just did it. Think about if you were there and you say you got to smear the blood of this sacrificial lamb on your doorpost and your lintel. You go, what? Why? But they said, God said do it, let's do it. Of course, that saved your firstborn's life. 
So when a believer accepts Christ by faith, what does he do? He's accepting the provision that God has made for salvation. So to the world, good works seem like the really best thing to do. Much better way to accomplish what God wants. Do rather than believe. But the world's way is not God's way. So we look at the last thing here, and that's in verse 29. Faith accepts God's promise. We should do that, and Moses did too. 29 said, Urged on by faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as though on dry land. When the Egyptians tried to do the same thing, they were swallowed up by the sea. So accepting God's promise in spite of the circumstances. Pharaoh was hot on the Jews' trail. He had taken a little while to come to the point where he was mad enough to go after them. We know that, but he took his whole army, his old chariot army after them. And at first the people lost heart. Now why? Because they were actually pinned up. You can look on a map. And you can see the Red Sea, about halfway down is a point in the mountains where there's a major mountain pass. It went through that mountain pass right up to the western border of the Red Sea. And they were blocked because if they, they couldn't turn around and go back because of the pass, the mountain was steep on both sides. They couldn't go into the Red Sea because obviously at that particular point, it's two to 300 feet deep. And that's a lot deeper in other parts. But that particular part, it's only 200, 200 feet deep or so. It's kind of a, a rise at that particular part of the Red Sea. And so they're lost. We're going to get either retaken as prisoners or killed by this, this uh, feral army coming after us. But what's interesting, and this, this, they did this very well, obviously, in, uh, I think they did it very well in Cecil B. DeMille's depiction of what happened at that time. But I'm going to get to Exodus 14 and read you something that, that Cecil actually used in the movie, which I thought was good. He used it kind of out of context a little bit. But chapter 14, 13, and 13 and 14, it says, Moses told the people, fear not, stand still, be confident, see the salvation of the Lord. And then he turned around, raised his staff up, and the water started parting. That's not what happened. In the Bible, it says, which he will work for you today, for the Egyptians have seen you today, and you'll never see them again. Lord will fight for you, and you shall hold your peace and remain at rest. And the Lord said, why are you crying out to me? And the people said, go forward. So then he says, lift up your rod, stretch out your hand over the sea, divide it. And the Israelite, God said to him, and, and the Israelites will go across on dry ground. And so that didn't happen. But anyway, I thought that Moses in the movie did it really well. It says, turn and see the salvation of the Lord. That's where the water's part. Now, you got three million people, folks. How many is that? That's 30 San Angelos. That's a lot of people. I would say that parted probably was a mile in between the two bodies of water. Probably parted, and there was a mile space between those bodies of water, and it turned to dry ground just immediately. So let's go. And they all went across. So the people initially lost heart, obviously. Because they, they so said to him just prior to that, they said, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in this wilderness? It's typical. But they believed when the waters parted, I bet you. <laughs> and dry ground appeared. Now you think about that. Dry ground appeared. Had it ever been dry ground before? No. But it appeared. It's kind of like, 
tomorrow night we're talking about when Jesus was out on the Sea of Galilee and the storm and the disciples came to him and said, we're going to die because the storm was so bad. The storm could just get really bad on the Sea of Galilee. Trust me, they can get 20 foot waves. So that could swamp that boat he was on. But Jesus stood up and calmed the sea and the waves and the wind, wind and the sea. People always say, you know, the storms come and go and see a galley all the time. You know, they see quit real quick, quit real quickly. There's no big deal here. Yeah, they might have quit real quickly, but uh, what calmed the waters? Waters were still doing this. If he's calmed the sea, he's calmed the wind, excuse me. Waters are still doing this. But it says specifically that he calmed the waters and the, the wind. In other words, when he said, stop, instantly it was like glass. And what did the disciples do? Who is this man? Yeah. And why did they do that? I'll say this again tomorrow night, but they did that because they'd seen him perform miracles. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out demons. But they'd never had to actually touch them to save their own lives. So they actually saw, they knew that God was standing there. He calmed the waters and the sea and the wind at the same time. Well, I look at look at what happened to Moses. He went to Pharaoh. God said, "Throw your staff down." And he became a snake, right? Then his necromancers did the same thing. Now, how did they do that? By the power of Satan. What happened to Job? Job's kids died in a terrible windstorm. Where'd that come from? From Satan. He he had he influenced people to come down and steal all of his cattle and all of his camels and everything else like that. And then he had the power Satan did to come down and make Job sick. It boils all over his body. So Satan's got a lot of power, but he doesn't have enough power to overcome, to overcome God. So he can't do that. So faith takes word, God's word, as truth. And when you do that, you're victorious. That may take a while. It may not even happen in this lifetime, but you will be eventually victorious. For sure, the test of faith is trusting God with anything. When all of the other promises fall flat, God's promises won't. At every point in our Christian lives, we either fulfill the will of God and are filled with the Spirit, or we fulfill our own will and quench the Spirit. And I think that's what Paul was talking about in chapter 7 of Rome. Romans. He was feeling like he was quenching the spirit because he was doing what he was he wanted to do, not what God wanted him to do. Now, I'm not saying what he was doing was wrong. He's probably what he was probably great. It was coming from his own mind and his own heart to God. So I'm going to end this with this. We will always decide for God, won't we? Well, I hope so. That's the challenge we have to make the proper decisions. Make the right decisions in God's will and follow the Spirit's guidance. That's the key to successful and victorious life. You may not be rich like the prosperity gospel preachers tell you, and you may not always be well physically, but you will be victorious because spiritually you will live with him forever. Any comments about this today? Did that quite a while ago, yeah. Yeah, yeah she's talking about, uh, she's watching National Geographic, and it's interesting that they would even have that. But there was some time ago, I think it was back in the, uh, like 2005 or so, something like that. 
And there was a Swedish explorer that wanted to find out. He, he was a believer, and he wanted to find out by diving down at that very point in the Red Sea that I was talking about, see what was down at the bottom of the sea. And they found, huh, gee, I wonder what this could be. There was a, a uh, encrusted with whatever, I don't know what, anyway, the time, things settling on it or maybe some coral or whatever else, but there was this, this object on the bottom of the, of the Red Sea that was round and it had spokes. <laughs> Cherry wheel. Cherry wheel. And they also brought up a, a thigh bone that was encrusted also. So God would preserve a thigh bone for 3,500 years, apparently so. so. Or preserve a cherry wheel. That cherry wheel might have been made out of brass. So that make, kind of makes sense. But uh, still, there's evidence for it. Trust me, there's evidence. And those, there was a marker placed on both sides of the Red Sea where they crossed. They're still there. Still there. Any other comments? Okay, let's pray. Lord God, thank you for giving us examples of the way to please you. Essentially, that's what this all boils down to, Lord. How do you please God? Well, you please God by paying attention to him, number one, by doing what he wants, number two, and by truly have faith in what he's told us will happen in the future. That's really the way to please God. Read his word. Listen to what it says through the Spirit's enlightenment and then act accordingly. And we can turn away at any time. God's given us that ability to do that. Should we? Of course not. But that's what we oftentimes do. But he will always be there to say, I know you goofed up and I might have to punish you a little bit somehow or another. Chastise you some. But basically, we, you know what the right thing is because you do know my son as Savior. But uh, don't do that again. Stop. So, Lord, that's what, what we want to do. We want to please you in every way. So thank you for your words that, that challenge us to do exactly that. Lord, bless us, guide us, direct us in this coming week. Help us to suffer through 85-degree temperatures sometime this week in the middle of winter. I mean, it's just kind of weird, but that's where we are. So, Lord, thank you for that anyway. And we praise you and trust you in Jesus' name. Amen.